The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Uh, if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to look at life in God's family. So last week we looked at Are You Wise and Discerning? And that, of course, is, was a passage that really deals with how we treat each other, and I thought maybe we'd continue that. And so we're going to read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, literally that you know, those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Well, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that that your word abides forever, and we pray that you would teach us from your word tonight. We pray that you would sanctify us through your word tonight. Father, we know that that your word is is designed to to change us, to change the way that we think, to change the way that we feel, to change the way that we act, to change our priorities, our loves, our hates. And so we pray, Father, for the sanctifying influence of your Holy Spirit tonight and that you would accomplish your purposes among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, doctrinal precision and theological speculation are, at least in my lifetime, are at an all-time high. I have never seen, in all my years as a Christian, so much emphasis on precision and speculation. And I am absolutely positive that social media has magnified this. In fact, uh, what we're seeing today may not even have been necessarily possible before the advent of social media. Now, when I say doctrinal precision and speculative theology, is, is doctrine important? And the answer is, of course it is. And is... Being precise in doctrine, is that important? And the answer is yes. But you have to understand that there's something that that often happens, and it's not just in this current generation, but there's something that often happens, and that is sometimes when we exalt uh, doctrine or theology, especially a certain kind, we end up discounting ethics. In other words, what ends up being all-important 
is that you cross every T and dot every I in exactly the way that it needs to be crossed or dotted. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's uh, the people that don't agree with you or whatever, um, you know, they're not worthy, you know, to lick your boots, okay? In fact, they are no longer even in the right group. Well, it, when you read your Bible, you realize that doctrine can never be separated from ethics, okay? Now, doctrine and ethics are not the same, but they are inseparable, okay? They are, they are inextricably bound together. In other words, the Bible is not simply concerned with what you believe. It's also concerned with how you live or how you live out what you believe. Uh, and so how we treat each other, how we minister to each other, how we think about each other matters. In fact, I would say that the heart of Christian ethics is how we treat each other. Okay. Uh, you know, we, <clears throat> some of us come from more fundamentalist backgrounds where ethics was often reduced to you don't do this, you don't do that, this is worldly, that's bad. And all the while uh, mistreating people along the way. New Testament ethics is about how we treat each other. And that is the priority. And just to uh, continue to pick on social media a little bit, it has become incredibly easy to actually mistreat people on social media. It is, it is, it is much easier to make some sort of snarky comment to somebody by typing something on a keyboard as opposed to saying it to their face, right? So you understand that we're, we, we have somewhat, um, I don't know if I would call it an, an ethical crisis yet, but maybe it's very close, right? And that is we have, we have a biblical faith that not only requires us to believe the faith once for all uh, delivered to the saints, but we also have a faith that requires us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Those two things are not two completely separate things to where you could say, well, I'm good at one, I'm just not good at the other, right? And so if we're supposed to live out our faith and, and it manifests itself in the way that we treat each other, and then it's really easy to mistreat people on social media, we have to be very careful, very careful in the way that we conduct ourselves. We're very quick to justify ourselves. We think that somehow we're, uh, we're truth warriors, and at the end of the day, we may just be jerks, okay? Now, all that's true, but <clears throat> Paul didn't have social media, right? <laughs> he, <laughs> there's a part of me that wish he, he would have, like, for one day, just kind of, like, wrote the epistle, wrote an epistle, and just had a section on 
social media. But we have plenty of principles that are applicable. And so you have this, you have this, in a sense, this ethical realm that we call social media. But you have to understand the, the primary ethical realm that you and I are concerned with is just simply life in God's family with each other. All right? Yeah, we need to behave ourselves out on social media. We need to have high ethics and, and, and treat people well. But when it comes right down to it, it's the people that you're joined together with that matters how you treat, right? So uh, you come into the church, and guess what? You're, you, you are, by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ, you're now related to very different types of people, Okay? You are related to people that you don't look like, you don't act like, that you are totally different from. And one of the glorious things about being in the family of God is that God puts together a group of people that are the most unlikely group of people to ever be joined together by anything. And yet it is union with Jesus Christ that actually transcends all of those differences and brings us together. And so God's work of grace in Christ brings us into a family. And so now those, those relationships are now the primary realm where we work out the ethics. Those relationships are the, that's the primary realm in which we now apply our faith. Okay? And so... God could have simply justified you, forgiven your sins, and then taken you straight to glory to, um, to a church that's already perfected in heaven. And he didn't. What he did is he saved you, he justified you, he gave you a spirit, and then he joined you to real people in a real place that's now your family. And he did it in perfect wisdom. I don't know if you ever had this experience as a kid. I, I think I was probably too afraid to have this experience as a kid. Boy, I wonder what it'd be like to be a part of a different family. Do you ever wonder that? Like, man, that family down the, the road seems really great. Maybe, you know, well, guess what? God made this family and you're stuck. Okay, you're, you're stuck. You are stuck with the people that God put you with, all right? And so it's these people that now um, we are living out this marvelous faith that God has given to us. And so uh, it should be clear to us. I mean, Charlie hits on this all the time. Daniel does as well. Christianity has never lived in isolation, it's just not. No such thing as the Lone Ranger Christian. No such thing as, you know, and this, again, this is one of the dangers of having so much stuff available to us. Um, it's, it's easy to detach ourselves from a local body because we have books, we have podcasts, we have sermons online and all of that. And the reality is, is that Christianity cannot not just should not, but cannot be lived in isolation. It has to be lived out in community. 
And sometimes community can be a tough place. The church triumphant, those are the people you want to be with. The church militant, (laughs) you know, those are the ones that sometimes are hard. Now, as we come to 1 Thessalonians, you go, what, what does all that have to do with, the, with 1 Thessalonians? It has everything to do with 1 Thessalonians. So, what I want us to think about tonight is, is life in God's family, and primarily in terms of how we treat each other in God's family. All right? Now, <clears throat> Paul is, um, Paul's given this wonderful uh, model for us. Uh, if you look back at chapter 2, he has, this is verses 7 to 12. We're, we're not going to go through the whole, the whole thing. But in verses 7 through 12, he says, he says three things that jump off the page in terms of how he ministered to the Thessalonians. One, he was gentle like a nursing mother. Paul was a man's man, all right? So, and yet, here's the image that Paul wanted the Thessalonians to think of as he administered to them. I cared for you as tenderly as a mother who's nursing that little infant, right? That little infant is absolutely helpless, and that mother gives herself completely to that child, right? For that child's good. And Paul could say, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was gentle among you, just like that. But then he could turn around and he could say, and he, was, he had a fond affection and was not only pleased to give them the gospel, but his very life, Right? So it's like you guys got, got a hold of my heart. You got in my heart. And I wasn't just there to give you the gospel. That was the main thing. But I was also there to give you myself, right? Knit together. And then the third image is as a, a firm yet loving father. And so, by the way, those, the, the, the nursing mother and firm loving father are two different images, aren't they? The, 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 the nursing mother is so tender as she holds that little baby to her breast and nourishes it, that, um, that firm, loving father who's imploring a son, um, you know, that's where, you know, that, the dad may get the hands on the shoulder and look the boy in the eye, you know. Say some words that need to be, that need to be said. And I think Paul was probably you know, smart enough to know that you didn't take a nursing baby and say, now look, son, you're going to have the tendency to be lazy one of these days. And I'm just telling you right now, don't be a sluggard, right? That's not what you say to an infant. That's what you say to a 13-year-old boy, right? And so this is Paul's imagery for ministry that he has given to the Thessalonians, right? And, and what is the thing about both of those images with that fond affection and, and self-givingness that Paul talks about. And the idea is, is that he was gentle. Because even the firm father at the end of the day is still gentle, right? 
He's not abusive. He's not abrasive. even, Even in his imploring, there should be a gentleness, right? And so here's Paul, and he's given us this model of gentleness. And now, in this passage that we're going to take a quick look at, Paul's now giving some specific instruction to living with family members in the body. Now, again, we're not going to go into uh, this first part very much, but just notice verses 12 and 13a, Paul is talking about their relationship with their leaders, right? So he wants them to to know, New American Standard says that you appreciate, I don't know what the ESV does, Daniel, do you have the ESV with you, or respect, okay, um, okay, both of those are okay, but the, the word is to know, right, so we request of you, brethren, that you know those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, right? So there's a sense of, hey, you, you, you uh, deepen that relationship with those that are uh, over you in the Lord, that instruct you, that care for your souls, right? Now, it is interesting to me that the exhortation is to the congregation to know the leaders and not the exhort, and I'm not saying that this wouldn't be an exhortation, but the exhortation is not to the leaders to get to know everybody, right? Okay, the leaders should get to know people, right? But guess what's really easy to do? I don't think church has changed much in 2,000 years in some ways, right? Okay. What's really easy to do? Just wait, wait for the pastor, right? Just wait for the pastor. And that's not always um, going to pr- be very fruitful, is it? So the onus of responsibility is put on the congregation. Okay? How do you like that? Right? Then it says that you esteem them or respect them, right? Uh, in love because of their work. In other words, you're like, okay, this guy labors for my soul and I'm thankful to God for him, right? And so there's that relationship with the leaders that, that Paul sets out as, as part of family life. And then he gives this general principle in 13b, which is, notice, live in peace with one another. Now that's got to be Leaders and congregation and leaders to leaders and congregation to congregation, right? It's just one another. Live at peace with each other, right? So there is, there is this um, family life in church should be marked by peace, right? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you're like, no, no, I like... I like um, uh, yeah, I, I love discord. I'd, I'd rather be a part of the IFCA. I fight Christians always. Uh, <laughs> no, peace is better than war, right? It's the blessing that flows. It's the oil that flows down Aaron's beard, right? And so Paul says that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here, Paul just says, be at peace with everyone, right? 
Wow, so guess what? That kind of goes back to last week. We're to be sowing peace, right? By those who make peace. We should be peacemakers. Then Paul gives specific instruction, and this is what I want us to look at in our few minutes together. He says, we urge you, brethren, and notice he's going to say, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So four things. Now, when he says, we exhort you, brethren, some think actually the address to the brethren is to the leaders. Okay? Actually saw that in a couple of different commentators today. I actually think at this point, he's not addressing the leaders specifically. He's addressing the body as a whole. And this is why I think that verse 14 is not just to the leaders, but to the body as a whole. Look at verse 11. Paul says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And then verse 12, we request of you, brethren. Verse 14, then, we urge you, brethren. Okay, so I see a parallel there. So you're to be building one another up, verse 11, encouraging one another. And now we're going to ask you, brethren, to do this. And now we're asking you, brethren, to do that. And then, of course, you end up with those short exhortations starting in verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, etc. I don't see him shifting gears or shifting audience. I think that the whole thing is addressed to the body as, as a whole. Why is that important? Well, because the four things that he's going to tell us that we need to be doing is the responsibility of everybody in the body. Okay. I remember one time... In, uh, in seminary, the, in the basement, they had a, a job board. And there was this buzz around campus. Oh, you ought to go check out the new posting on the job board. And it was a small Baptist church. And they were looking for a man who would teach Sunday school, preach Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and clean the church and cut the lawn and, right? I mean, they had a list and it was basically do everything, right? So are there times where the church can kind of say, hey, we got this hired guy, he's supposed to do it, right? That's not body life, okay? That's not body life. That is a, a shabby organization, all right? But it's not body life. So the importance of actually knowing that Paul is addressing the body as a whole here when he says, we urge you, brethren, is to understand that this is what's going to be delineated for us is not just simply the pastor's job. It is the responsibility for all of us. I'm just going to tell you that there's going to be some of this stuff that you don't want to do. Like the first one, admonish the unruly. Admonish the disorderly. So admonish is our word nutheteo, right? And so you've heard of nuthetic counseling. This is the, the word that that comes from, and it is the idea of admonishing. So there are, there are um, many pastoral examples of admonishment. For instance, Paul 
could say to the Ephesian elders, you remember they meet at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, and the apostle says that you know that for three years I did not cease to admonish you with tears, right? So you have that sort of, you know, so here's Paul in a pastoral role, admonishing and doing so with tears, right? Then you have other passages like when Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.14, so when I come, it's not to shame you, but to admonish you as beloved children, right? And so probably one of the most famous passages where the word is used is in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching every man in all wisdom, etc., so that we may present you mature in Christ. And so very clearly, admonishing is a, is a pastoral role, but members are to admonish one another. We have a responsibility to admonish one another. In fact, if you just flip back just a few pages to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16... Colossians 3.16, the apostle says, verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so as the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, what are we doing? Well, we're teaching and admonishing and singing and building each other up, right? This is the famous verse, of course, that Jay Adams took his competent to counsel idea from Romans 15, 14. He says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. So what does it mean to admonish somebody? Well, in in one sense, it's to warn them. You get that sense where in in Acts 20, where Paul says, "I, I didn't cease to admonish you for three years with tears, right? That he was that he was warning them. If you look the word up, nutheteo, in uh, in the Launita lexicon to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. So it's either warning somebody, you need to stop this behavior, right? Or you're warning them, don't go down that road. So these are not easy conversations. Admonishing is not an easy thing, right? Nobody... Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, boy, I hope somebody admonishes me today. You also don't wake up in the morning and think, who can I admonish today? Now, if you do wake up in the morning and wonder, who can I admonish today? There's something wrong with you, all right? And so the idea of just warning and and pleading and urging somebody to either stop a behavior or avoid a behavior 
is part of what Paul's talking about. So who are they to admonish? Well, notice the disorderly or the unruly. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of grammar. So the Greek word for order is the word taktos. It means proper order. This word is autoktos, which means not in proper order. And so the word itself could be used in a variety of ways. It could be used in the sense of being undisciplined or disorderly, insubordinate, unruly, or even disruptive. So later in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul's going to use this word in an adverb form twice in in, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 11, and he's going to use it in reference to those who are idle, those who are lazy, those who are not working, all right? And so so you, you look at this word and you go, okay, well, on the one hand, it could be a person who is uh, insubordinate and disruptive, or it could be a person who's, who is just idle or lazy. Um, but if you look at the immediate context of the First Thessalonians passage, remember what it says right before this, live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean towards actually the idea of the unruly being disturbers of the peace, All right? They need to be admonished. They need to be warned. They need to be told, stop it, okay? Easy to do? Not really, Necessary at times. Just stop and think for a minute. Just um, we, We've had our fair share of unruly people over the years. And a lot of times what happens is that the, the disruptive or the disturber of the peace, if you will, continues to disturb and continues to disrupt until it rises to the level of then the pastors know about it, okay? Wouldn't it be great if we took this exhortation seriously and dealt with it when we saw it? In other words, a lot of of things could be cut off (laughs) right, at the pass, if God's people just kind of said, you know what, Ah, don't really want to do this, but, you know, you know, brother, sister, whatever, you were, um, you were out of line by the way that you said this, or the way that you did this, and I want to admonish you, I want to warn you, you need to stop that, okay? So life in God's family means that we have to be willing to admonish each other. Now, notice the next one. 
Comfort the faint-hearted. The word there for comfort is, again, there's, there's sort of a broader, the idea could be to encourage, um, to cheer, to console, or to comfort. Right? So this is different. Right? So admonish is, I got to kind of pluck up the courage by God's grace to, 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 to have this conversation. This conversation is, my goal is to cheer this person, to comfort this person, to console this person. Okay? Now, I want to say that that should probably come to us more naturally than the other. And if it does, that's good. But I also want to say that it is, it is um, sometimes hard, even for God's people, to try to comfort and cheer somebody. I don't necessarily know why. So we were having this, uh, this, this informal Q&A thing and, um, at somebody's house, and they were asking about uh, the lessons that, uh, that I could pass on on minis- uh, ministering to somebody who's suffering. So what did you learn when you went through your brain surgery stuff that was, that was um, you know, that, that you were encouraged by and then what you were not encouraged by. And one of the things is the, on the one hand, the amazing amount of encouragement and consolation that comes, but then on the other hand, <clears throat> the absence of it from people you would expect it from. All of a sudden, people who you were knit together with are like nowhere to be seen. For all different kinds of reasons. Sometimes just fear. Sometimes uh, the fear of maybe not wanting to say the wrong thing or something like that. But I want to say that it should be second nature to us to be those that encourage each other. And if you're worried about saying something dumb, just say it anyway. Say it anyway. Take a risk. Be an encourager, and if you risk saying something dumb and you say something dumb, that person's going to just consider the source and not hold it against you. But notice who's to be encouraged here. It's not the unruly. (laughs) It's the faint-hearted. And this word faint-hearted is is a combination word of oligos, which is small, so like oligarchy, small, and then psukos, soul. The word is small-souled, but it comes to mean the idea of someone who is discouraged. That discouragement could be they are, uh, are losing heart, they are fearful, they feel inadequate or even despondent. Somebody that's a doubter, that's always doubting, would be in this category of the faint-hearted. And Paul says, what you do with the faint-hearted, what you do with those who 
feel like they have no strength left, those that wonder if their faith is going to make it another day, what do you do? You encourage them. You encourage them. Is it always easy to comfort and encourage a faint-hearted person? It's not always. It's not always. One of the impediments that we sometimes have is the lack of sensitivity and compassion to their faint-heartedness. Okay? So sometimes we're just thinking to ourselves, just buck up. What's wrong with you? Paul says, encourage them. Encourage them. Don't admonish them. Encourage them. Do you think it might be just flat out sinful to treat a faint-hearted person like they're an unruly person? Yeah. Third category. Stand by the weak. This is going to be similar to what Paul had just said. Stand by is the idea to endure or to bear with or to help or support or even be devoted to. Now, sometimes, sometimes this word endure with is in a negative context. Okay? You have to endure or tolerate something. Okay? And Paul uses it in in negative, with negative connotations, right? It's like, you know, bearing trials or bearing difficult people and so forth. But here, it's not, it's not that idea at all. It's the idea of coming alongside, helping and assisting. And who are you, who are you standing with, right? Who are you devoted to and helping and supporting? Well, it's the weak, and of course, the weak is completely like non-descriptive because weakness could be all different kinds of things. You could have, so sometimes this word is used in terms of a physical weakness, it being sick or infirmed or even disabled. Um, sometimes it's used in context of being poor or destitute. But it could also be a reference to those who are weak in faith, those who are morally weak, those who are, those who are fearful, those who are weak in faith. And so those who are weak require a lot of attention and care. Can it be draining? 100%. Can it be something that's easy to put off? The faint-hearted and the weak as similar categories are people that just require more care. 
By the way, if, if you have like more than one kid, you know that even your children have distinct and unique needs that are not all the same. It's the same thing among God's people. We, we are surrounded by people that need care and attention. And so I would say that it is important for us to be sensitive to the kind of person you're dealing with. You know the old saying, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, <laughs> right? And there, there are some people who, who treat everybody as if they're unruly. And and then there are other people who treat everybody as if they're just weak. And just as sure as you're not doing any good to the unruly person by just treating them as if they're weak or faint-hearted, so you're doing damage to the weak or faint-hearted by treating them as if they are unruly. And so you have to have some discernment. You have to have some compassion and there's, when there's a lot of demands on your time and you see that needy person, boy, it sure is easy to walk around the other side of the building, right? But here's Paul's three admonitions so far to us, three instructions. just say one more thing about the different types of people. If you're going to be a person who sows peace, you also have to be the kind of person that gives people the benefit of the doubt and believes the best about them. Let's say somebody says something to you that's not, let's say, encouraging. Maybe it's just rude. It might help just to stop and instead of being a thin-skinned, quarrelsome person, just say, wow, I wonder what's going on in their life. In fact, I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've gotten my nose bent out of shape by somebody's response or reaction to me, only to find out that they were going through something that I had no idea about. And so that person that you deem not very friendly, maybe they are under a burden And God has caused you to cross paths so that you can help them. It's easy to see people as inconveniences. It's hard to say, 
I need to be committed to that person in order to encourage. I need to, I need to stand with that person. And then Paul, just to make sure that we can't do this at all, says, be patient with everybody. <laughs> he, just, he just gave the unattainable standard, right? Be patient with everybody. Be forbearing with everybody. Um, by the way, which means with the unruly and the faint-hearted and the weak, right? You, you, all of them. And so that word that he uses here to be patient is, let me just read this to you, a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. That's patience. Well, let me just read it again because I know you're going to want to put this into practice right away. A state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. It is this very word that Paul says, love is patient. This is one of the characteristics of love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is patience. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So it's characteristic of Christian love. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul says, be patient with all. So patience is not given to somebody that's earned it. Patience isn't given to somebody who's worthy of it. It's given to everybody. And so that idea of just being patient, um, it means that I'm not going to be a quarrelsome, contentious person. I'm not going to be a thin-skinned person. I want to say that there's... You know the problem with being thin-skinned? Is you're just proud. Okay? It's probably not exactly how you wanted to hear it, but being thin-skinned, being easily offended, is because you're proud. You're not humble. Humility actually puts a thick skin on you. So the exhortation in all four of these is really in some sense a call to being gentle, which means that we're not quarrelsome, we're not contentious people. It requires that we sympathize with others. Just take this poll in your head. You don't have to raise your hand. Am I quick to encourage or am I quick to criticize? If I'm quick to criticize, we go, well, I don't like say it out loud. (laughs) Is it in here? And so what this, what this requires of us, this, this life in God's family, is it requires that we are genuinely humble people who are seeking peace and seeking the good of other people. That's, that's one of the things about the community of Christ, is that there is a 
genuine love which seeks the good of each other, which requires a humility. I put this quote in the notes for you so that you could have it because I think that you probably would want to put this on your refrigerator or the mirror that you get ready in front of every morning. Whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry nor harsh or critical of others. He will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there is a difference, it is grace alone which has made it. He knows that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart, and under all trials and afflictions, he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved. So what humility does is humility gives me, makes me look at that unruly person, and instead of just being angry at that person because they're disrupting my peace, okay? By the way, that's, that's the problem with teenagers, is you just look at them as disruptors of your peace, okay? You can get resentful as, as, as a parent, right? I want to go home. I want to sit down. I want to relax. And you get home, and it's like, you know what? He has resisted doing his homework all day he has and you're like you little disruptor of the peace you are ruining my little kingdom all right so that was a side note that was just reflecting i (laughs) so humility actually i look at the person who's disruptive right let's say they've got problems and humility makes me say you know what the only thing that makes me differ from this person is God's grace. Okay? Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who causes you to differ? Right? What do you have that you didn't first receive? And if you received it as a gift, why do you boast as if you didn't? So if you're not unruly, thanks be to God, but look at the unruly person and say, you know what? That could be me. That could be me. What, what if I were dealt the hand that that person has been dealt Right? So can that actually uh, provoke some compassion? Absolutely. Uh, uh, being humbled means that I look at the weak, I look at the faint-hearted, and I think, Lord, okay, I thank you that that's, that's not the condition that I'm in right now. Maybe it is, but if it's not, just, Lord, thank you, but give me that sense of compassion for that person, knowing that my faith oftentimes is held by a thread, and I could be in that person's position just as easily as that person. So humility actually just makes me realize that I'm, any difference is not because I'm better. It's just because of the grace of God. You ever just look at your own family tree and just go, Lord, thank you? Right? You come from a line of gypsies, tramps, and thieves, or communists, (laughs) terrorists, and you just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. That helps you look at other people differently. Well, where does it come from? It doesn't come from 
just talking to yourself. This is where it comes from. Isaiah 42, 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. That, of course, is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61, 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus himself says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what you don't see in any of these passages? Is a harshness in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Could he mix it up with the Pharisees? Oh, you better believe he could. But the weak, even the unruly, the faint-hearted, he was not harsh. In fact, that bruised reed that was about to break or that smoldering flax which was about to go out, our Lord Jesus actually had compassion on the afflicted and the brokenhearted and those who were in bondage, and he had compassion on them in such a way that he never broke a bruised reed. And he never extinguished a barely burning wick. And so, we really can do no better than to treat people in the way that our Savior treated people and has treated us. And so the challenge comes in trying to recognize them. And here's the thing. We think we're good at it. We think that we can really peg people. We can, really, we can really get them in that category. We know, right? And I just want to say, I think that we need to be more patient. Realize people are hurting. People are struggling. And life in God's family means that I admonish the unruly, even when it's not comfortable. And I encourage the faint-hearted. And I stand by the weak. And I try to be patient with everyone. That only comes from understanding the, the love and the beauty of Jesus in being that way to me. And that's what should mark life in God's family. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, how often we have failed to do these most basic Christian things. We pray that you would forgive us, forgive us for our failures, forgive us when we've broken that bruised reed, forgive us when we have admonished the faint-hearted and then discouraged them all the more. And we pray that you would help us to love each other and minister to each other in the way that our Lord Jesus has done and continues to do. We pray that by his Spirit, he would be mighty among us, demonstrating 
the love and the mercy and the patience and the grace that we have so richly received. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.